In this episode of the Raised with Jesus podcast, we are featuring one of two episodes on the seven words from the cross from the St. Andrew Lutheran Church podcast, Impact. You can find out more in the show notes. Here goes. Welcome to Impact, a podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Impact features interviews with gifted Bible teachers that will help you better understand scripture so it will have a greater impact on your life. The host of Impact is Mark Jenstead, the staff minister for Nurture at St. Andrew. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. God's powerful word is at work, and he will bless you through it. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord, you are our rock and fortress, our guide, and our only hope. Look on us as we open our Bibles today and study your word and plant that truth deep in our hearts. Amen. So thank you folks for being here and listening to this podcast ministry. I appreciate that. And I would ask for your prayers and ask you to find someone in your life that you think might enjoy this podcast ministry and tell them about it. Uh, I'm back in Mequon, Wisconsin today. It's been a while since I've been here. Uh, I'm at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, the beautiful grounds here. And I would urge you, if you've never had a chance, to come and visit the seminary in Mequon. It's a beautiful place. And my guest is Professor Steve Geiger. Welcome back to Impact. Thank you. It's always great to have you here and get your insight. Today we're going to talk about, since we're in Lent, we're going to talk about the seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Um, I'm always fascinated by that number seven. It comes up so often in scripture. What do you make of that? Yeah. So in, I mean, in the book of, in the book of Revelation, it had, there's a very clear symbolism attached to it, right? That um, it's, it's a number of, of kind of completeness and, and the um, promise that God has made uh, with men, sometimes like a covenant number of, of a commitment, a promise. Um, there are other places where it occurs where it's just hard to know for sure, obviously, if it's intended to have the same kind of symbolic meaning. But but yeah, that number and the number 40 appears a lot. And anyway, I think sometimes we, we can see some connections and other times we'll be cautious before saying it is too tight a connection. Okay. How about Lent? Just tell us about Lent from your perspective. What is Lent all about? What What is the focus? What should our focus be? During this season, what it makes me think about is a child who has a sliver uh, in their finger. Like it is very, very. It doesn't happen if a child gets a sliver in their finger for them just to kind of go on with their day. They they are on your doorstep, knocking on your uh, or coming into your office, wherever you are at as a dad or a mom, and they're telling you that they have a sliver and they need you to take it out. Said another way, you don't have to convince a child that a sliver hurts. Of course it hurts, and they're hoping to have it removed. What's strange is that as human beings, we can have hurt, and we can even hurt ourselves, and we can insist on not acknowledging that we're hurting, that we don't need anyone to remove the sliver from our soul. What Lent is as odd as this may sound, is God working so hard to show us that we have a sliver. Like you really are hurting on the inside. And, and as we hear God speak to us and he points out our, our, our disobedience, our guilt, um, the places where we have fallen short, and then by the power of his spirit convinces us that he's telling the truth, 
like we're not calling God a liar. We're, you know, actually I wasn't thinking about that, but now that I look like, whoa, and, and my fingers getting red, like I see, I see the sliver in my hand uh, where we begin to see how great the price uh, is that we owe the Lord for all of our sins. And then to be blown away that the Lord has a plan to not just remove that sliver, but to heal the hand completely and then to, in the end, preserve us for eternity, never being affected by sin again. That's what Lent is. Lent Lent is a season of repentance. Lent is a season of recognizing my sin, acknowledging it, saying to the Lord, here's what I deserve as a consequence of my actions. But then also to constantly be reminded that there is a Jesus that we're going to celebrate victory in a couple of weeks, <laughs> but we're not going to make you wait until Easter to find out that your sin is forgiven. There's a Jesus who we are looking forward to celebrating his victory, who is your victory today. It's sober. It is reflective. It is self-revealing. It is transparency. And in the end, it's being blown away that the Lord could love someone like me, which is precisely what the Lord has done. How about one more Lent question before we study Jesus' words on the cross? Um, Some people, not generally Lutherans, give something up for Lent. What about that practice? I think in general, the, the desire when giving something up is to in some way express humility, to help ourselves feel the weakness of the individual that we truly are, when it's done in its best, its best form. And in, in that regard, if, you know, if giving something up helps you reflect on Jesus, like sometimes in the New Testament, we'll talk about fasting and praying. We don't make that a rule that whenever you pray, you must fast. But, you know, why would they do that? It, it gave them a chance to, to feel something different, to give something up, to be able to focus in the end. Now, some people will say, if I give something up, all I'm going to be thinking about is what I give up, (laughs) you know, and then, okay, that's not accomplishing (laughs) the the purpose. Precisely. Or you can give something up thinking that you're going to, you know, make God be more, you know, ready to to feel compassion for you because look at how much you're suffering, you know, where you're almost trying to earn God's favor by your actions, which of course is not as God, as God wishes you to see it at all. Um, So I would say, you know, if it's, it's something that's done with the intent of focusing on the Lord, of reminding yourself of your weakness and how much you depend on the Lord, then it can be a very, it can be a very profitable custom. All right. Let's take a look at Jesus' seven words spoken from the cross. And this, folks, is going to be a two-part impact. So part one this week, we'll look at the first three statements from Jesus. And next week, we'll look at the remaining four. So, Professor, the first thing that Jesus says from the cross is is recorded in Luke chapter 23. That's the thing about these seven words. Uh, They're in different Gospels. Um, There's only one that's in two. That's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in both Matthew and Mark. The other six statements are only recorded in one Gospel, and it's uh, it's either Luke or Matthew or John, if I have that right. Right. The only one that's in Mark is the one that uh, is is also in Matthew. I may have just I may have just messed this up, but I think I've got it right. I guess my point is so it's hard to go and find all these folks, but Father, forgive them. You'll find in Luke twenty three, Jesus says, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing." Who is them? 
One of the challenges with this question is is understanding like what what is actually meant by Jesus' prayer. So, for example, some will say, well, this couldn't be referring to this group, for example, because they never would have repented of their sin. And and there we would say, like, what Jesus is doing is not announcing to them as we would, for example, if someone confesses their sin, where the law has done its work. And then what does God command us to do? He tells us to use the loosing key. So if someone has acknowledged their sin, you use the loosing key and you announce to them forgiveness. And you say, before God, I announce to you, your sin is forgiven. On the other hand, if someone is caught in a sin and they insist on their right to do it, and they say, but doesn't matter because Jesus forgives me, then God commands us to use that locking key where we say, I'm sorry, but your lack of recognition, this is wrong, means I need to tell you this sin is not forgiven. In other words, it's still attached to you. Did Jesus die for that sin? Absolutely. But I am not allowed to have you rejoice in that right now because you are insisting on your continued right to sin. When people stand before God on judgment day and they, and he sends them to hell, it's not because Jesus didn't die for their sin. In the end, it if they do go to hell, it is because they have insisted on their right to reject God, his will for their lives, and the forgiveness that he came to offer because they gave the impression they didn't need it. So with that in mind, we know that from all we can tell, Jesus is not announcing to them the grace of God here. He's not using the unlocking key. What he's doing is he is expressing the will of God. God wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He is not saying, Ugh, like, I'm just going to get you guys so bad. He cared for their souls. He wanted them to be saved. He did not want them to suffer forever for the actions that they were taking. Now, who's the them? Who is this group that he had, that his heart went out not to wish vengeance upon them, but to long for their repentance? In the context of Luke uh, 23, it, the only group that has been mentioned so far are the Roman soldiers. They're the ones who crucified him. And then the one guy on his left and the other on his right. And then Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And right after that, uh, they divided his clothes among them, casting lots. So like it's really hard from the context to say anything other than Jesus was was longing for the repentance of the of the Roman soldiers. Now that centurion, remember, right, at the very end of the the Good Friday account, you know, when the earthquake and all of the rest, surely this was the Son of God. You know, one wonders, did did the Holy Spirit, through the words of Jesus and the events of that day, work in the hearts of Roman soldiers? Where was that one of the men? that was in Jesus' eyesight when he prayed this prayer? Maybe. Does that mean that Jesus didn't want the Pharisees to be forgiven? Did that mean that Jesus didn't want it? Obviously not. Um, But this particular word, it seems to have been focused on the soldiers. What does the word forgive mean in Greek? The word word in Greek um, is afhiemi, and it's two parts. Um, The first part is like away from, the off and the hiemi is like what you do if you throw a football. You'd hiemi the football, or you'd send it away from you. You'd throw it away from you. So uh, to send something away is what forgive means. And this was the heart of Jesus. He knows that we have sin. His longing is that that sin be removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That was his heart as people were pounding his hands into into wood. And you made clear that God is not going to forgive 
the impenitent sinner. The Bible makes that clear. That's why you made that clear. What about us? In other words, when people sin against us, whether they are sorry for what they did or not, doesn't change the fact that we are directed to forgive. Do I have that right? Absolutely. And using the, the way, understanding forgive in the sense that Jesus was employing it here, as opposed to what we mean when we talk about applying the grace of God to someone as they have come to understand their sin and they're afraid. So another way to say it would be, um, the Lord always wants us to have a forgiving heart towards someone. We never want to hold a grudge. We always want to um, long for their repentance. That said, it can happen where, let's say someone, you know, someone is in a relationship where, where abuse occurred and the individual who caused the abuse has refused to acknowledge it. And the, what, there obviously can be other things that play out in a situation like that that can even involve the law, law enforcement and the rest. But if you would just look at it from the perspective of someone who has suffered that and you know, many, many years later, you know, pastor, I just can't forgive him for that. Like I still bear the scars of what I experienced. Like there's probably two issues there. First of all, has he acknowledged his sin? You know, there are situations where people who have done this after the fact come and confess their sin to the one that they harmed, end up getting putting it, put in jail because of it. But their conscience is clear before the Lord and, and a victim then, in the name of Jesus, can say, I forgive you. That doesn't mean they'll stand up in the courtroom and say, this person shouldn't go to prison. But they truly apply to that individual the grace of God. That's our goal in all of this. Can it happen that someone who has been harmed by someone else themselves is tempted into the sin of resentment and anger? where they're not just saying, this person is not repentant, so I can't tell them in the sight of God that their sin is forgiven. They're saying, I don't want that person to ever enjoy the love of Jesus. I don't want that person to be forgiven. I'm angry at that person. You know, one of the easiest ways to get us to sin is when someone does sin against us. You watch children at play and, you know, it's the one who does the bad thing back after the first one does the bad thing justifies their bad response. And as a parent, of course, you seek to address both sides of that. The guy who started it is wrong, but the one who responded badly is also wrong. It's in that regard that if I'm struggling to have a forgiving heart, like to, to say, um, I so long for your repentance. If I'm struggling to have that feeling, then that is a sin that I want to confess to the Lord. You know, please give me the heart of Jesus who was mistreated in ways that go far beyond anything that we might be able to experience. And still, his heart was concerned about the eternal destiny of the ones who were harming him. Back to what Jesus said, uh, Professor, you said, um, it seems as Father, forgive them, in the context is the Roman soldiers. And then he says, they do not know what they are doing. And what they are doing is, well, they're carrying out orders to execute 
this man as they perceive him. But he's innocent and he's God. So that's, that's why they don't know what they're doing. They think they're putting to death a criminal. You know, the, the, the tragedy, of course, of this moment um, was the injustice after injustice, after lie, after false ac- you know, accusation. It was, we see all the way along that this was not right. And that's important for us to see because we need to know that our Savior was innocent. He, he, had, he was the perfect son of God. His death was not for himself. It was for us. We need to know that so that we can have peace. In the process, there were many individuals who sinned against him. Finally, eternal condemnation comes regardless of our awareness of what we are doing. Our sin is sin is sin. But here with the soldiers, Jesus does draw attention to the fact that there's a complete unawareness of what's really going on here. Like there's a whole nother thing behind the scenes that people were not seeing with their eyes. And, and if anything, what that does, it doesn't say, well, if you know what you're doing, I definitely don't want you to be forgiven. And if you don't know what you're doing, then I do want you to be forgiven or, you know, something that like a weird place like that. But what it's, what it's saying is, you don't understand what you're doing right now. Like if you really understood what you were doing, you wouldn't be doing this. And like, you'd like to think that we don't know what we're doing when we're sinning. And, and we can struggle with that. You know, like, did I do that? And I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. And then we really get scared. Um, there are some times when we do something and we like authentically weren't thinking about it at all. And then we only feel the guilt afterward. A beautiful reminder, a beautiful truth is that even when our lack of understanding, our ignorance, like the Apostle Paul, right, you know, tormenting Christians, going after them, he acted in ignorance. He, he wasn't seeing what he really should have seen. That even with someone like that, the Lord Jesus was eager and ready to forgive. And, and when we, even if we look back and we say, I should have known better, You know, I actually had a thought when I was in the process of doing that sin that made me think I shouldn't have done it and I did it anyway. And now I'm scared that the heart of Jesus remains the same. He wants everyone to be saved. He died for the sins of everyone. When Judas betrayed him, did Jesus want him to go to hell? He didn't want Judas to go to hell. Like he doesn't want anyone to suffer forever. That's why he cried on Palm Sunday before he came into the city. And um, I think as far as bottom lines, it's the heart of Jesus here. He he wants people to know that they're forgiven. Well, let's stay in Luke 23. And the second word spoken from the cross as recorded by Luke is to one of the thieves crucified with Jesus. And Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is quite a remarkable statement that Jesus makes. Before these remarkable words of Jesus, if we look at this verse in context, can you answer this question? On what basis did did the criminal make this request? Like, I want to be in this kingdom. Take me into this kingdom with you. What's the basis for his request? 
you wonder if this might be one of those stories that if only John had written this one down, we had room at least for one more book in the world, right? To tell the story of all the things that were said when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Like what we do know is that at the beginning, he was ridiculing Jesus with the other thief. So there was definitely a change. And what was it that led to the change? You know, did he know anything about what was happening to Jesus? Did he know of him prior to getting hung on the cross? He knew that he was innocent. You know, on what basis did he reach the conclusion that Jesus was innocent? There's, there's so many things we don't know. But I think what we do know is that the words of God that he heard that day, and maybe it was partly Father, forgive him. It was, you know, who, what, who knows what else was going on. But that somehow he had come to understand who Jesus was. And he had come to understand that what Jesus was had everything to do with a criminal like him who did not deserve to be in heaven. To that there was a path where something could change right? Jesus, please have me on your mind when you enter, enter into your kingdom. Like he knew that Jesus was not a loser, though he was hanging on the cross. Like, how does that happen? That you are convinced that Jesus is on the right side of history here, right? The, when I think of people who knew how this was going to turn out before it turned out the way it turned out, Mary, the sister of Martha, anoints Jesus for his burial a week before Jesus was crucified. So she's, she's got it. She knows how it's going to turn out before it happened. Right. But you think about everybody else in the account, like there was just a lot of, we get fear. We're going to the tomb to find a dead body. We're crying because his body got stolen. You know, we're all of these sorts of things, right? You've got Mary, the sister of Martha, and you've got a thief, a criminal, the two of them, what we are told of them, it was all understanding the bigger picture. I don't know what, I don't know what was said. You don't, who knows what kind of conversations went back and forth, but somehow that thief found out the key pieces of forgiveness of someone who, who had ruined his life and deserved what he had ending up in heaven when he died. And and I don't know, like, how does he, he didn't, I don't, can't imagine that he hurt any less as he was hanging on that cross, but, but to know it was all going to be just okay. Well, one commentator said he was the only one and you, and you would add Mary to this. The, they were the only ones that knew about the resurrection that, that, that believed in the resurrection, because if he says this, then he, he clearly believes that this Dying Jesus is going to live again. When you, you know, so many of the accounts on Easter, like with the Emmaus disciples, for example, you know, they're, they're wondering what happened. And we heard that he's, you know, some people said that they, he wasn't in the tomb and all of the rest. What you see in Friday, Saturday, you know, maybe even Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is that you've got, you've got believers in Jesus whose faith is being pressed to the limit. You know, would we say they all had lost their faith by Sunday? Like, I don't know that we would say they had all lost their faith by Sunday, but they were certainly living in a period of weakness. What Jesus does in the end is he just, don't you remember that what I, don't you remember what I told you? Like he, he, he gives them reassurance by reminding them of things they did know. 
you know, they did know that he was going to rise again on the third day. Uh, the enemies of Jesus knew that he was going, he had claimed he was going to rise again on the third day because that's why they had the soldiers there, right? So this was all plainly shared. But what was obviously not happening was this truth was the thing that we're hanging on to no matter what, and our hearts are filled with joy because of it. That's what changed, though, after Jesus' resurrection, right? He showed that he always keeps his promises. He showed they could trust his word. And all of a sudden, you have people who are rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering for Jesus' name after they get released by the Jewish officials having been thrown into prison for preaching Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, they are living out precisely what their confidence in Jesus should always have led to. And and maybe we see ourselves in that. You know, there are times when we are confidently living out our faith and there are other times where we're acting like Jesus lost because we're living through a, you know, a Saturday after Good Friday. What a, what a wonderful reminder from the thief, from Mary, and in the end from all of these people that were encouraged by Jesus that if we ever feel that way, it's not because it's true that Jesus lost. It's only feeling that way because the devil has tricked us into thinking that God has lied to us. The antidote, call out the liar. Just flat out say, that is not true, right? And you know that God will never let you down. A couple of words from the text here, Professor, I'd like to uh, get your thought on. Um, Jesus says, as he's speaking to this thief from the cross, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And then he also says, today you will be with me. Let's take those one at a time. Uh, and that's not the first time we heard Jesus say, I tell you the truth. Can you give us a, a brief answer on what he means by that? I think the one puzzling thing is you could say, why didn't you say that before everything that yeah. you said? <laughs> right? exactly. Every sentence, I tell so you So when you truth. don't say that, you're not telling tell the truth? You, exactly. So I think, I mean, the, the big thing is, this is it's, it's emphasizing this, right? I mean, he really, he wants this individual to know there is no doubt about this. There would have been no doubt about it had Jesus not said this, but it just gives to the hearer an extra word of reassurance. This is, sh and, and to some degree, it, it kind of bounces off of the unbelievability of this, right? Uh, to the degree that Jesus doubles down on this is true is to say, and I know like on the other side, there'd be like tr double, triple, quadruple reasons why there's no way this could actually be true. So he's maybe recognizing, you know, the, the incredibleness of this and, and giving beautiful, you know, beautiful reassurance. I, I never break my word. Yeah. I, I guess we, we say things like that when we're saying something that we perceive is not going to be believed or it, it will be difficult to be believed. Uh, Jesus is the only one, right, in Scripture that uses that phrase, I tell you the truth? Yeah, as far as, I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. I thought I read that one time that, that he's the only one that is quoted as saying that. Like it's hard. What would be interesting is to look more broadly at you know in classical literature and to find out if ever if anyone you know in an effort to in a speech yeah. to to reinforce their point would say something like that. I think the one thing we would know. So the word he uses in the Greek is amen, and, and it's so they take a he that's a Hebrew word and they and they put it into the Greek. So like it may technically be true that like a Roman would never have said amen. I say to you, because a Roman would have never used Hebrew. Um, but the concept, it'd be hard to know for sure if it had, you know, other, other usage. But as far as the Bible's, the Bible's employment of it, the fact that Jesus does say this, 
and repeatedly is is to you just wow like you know as firm as you can say to the this is not a lie and then that word today professor today you will be with me in paradise do we take that literally and if so then what does that mean what was his paradise like that very day yeah so i mean just to ask like when we ask the question um do we take something literally a general like Bible interpretation principle is that you take something literally unless there's something in the context that makes it very clear that it's intended to be like a metaphor, some kind of a parable, something of the sort. So we would say, absolutely, we take it literally. It's that very day um, he would be with him in paradise. As to what paradise is, um, Revelation is probably the place where that term gets, I mean, as far other than here, it gets used a lot. And in Revelation, he talks about um, the right that people have to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. So he combines, it's really Garden of Eden imagery, right? We've got the tree of life, and then we've got this paradise, which is a word reflective, again, of the beauty of that original uh, place where Adam and Eve lived. Um, Also in Revelation, we've got the tree of life mentioned other places. So this is a central part of heaven. Tree of life, Garden of Eden paradise, word for Garden of Eden, heaven on the end now of human human history, uh, tree of life, and paradise. So when Jesus tells this man, you're going to be with me in paradise, like he's speaking of heaven, he's speaking of uh, an, an image which kind of harkens back to that perfect place that God had given to his creation where there is no more death, you know, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more anything else. The man's body stayed on the cross. For him to be with Jesus that day meant it had to be his soul. And so here we have a great example of how uh, at death, a separation occurs. The body stays on the earth and turns to dust. The soul returns to God who gave it. When Jesus says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He is also talking about his soul, his body stayed on the cross, went in a tomb, but his spirit also returned to God who gave it. So you have the the soul of the thief, the spirit of the thief. You have the soul of the God-man, Jesus, right? Uh, Now having returned to Jesus' father. And so that very day they were there, like the fascinating thing is what can souls do as far as like can they communicate? We have one example from Revelation of where it's just it's just part of a vision. So you're a little cautious about that, but it has souls under the throne of God, the souls of those who had been martyred for the faith, asking the Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? And so there we have an example of something with without a body yet, not resurrected body, having conscious thought and communicating. Again, it's in a vision, but I think that at least keeps the door wide open for thinking, yeah, that sort of thing is not at all unusual for us once we're in heaven, just our souls. I want to go back to what the thief said. He was talking to Jesus and he said, remember me, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is no small request. And and when we consider not only Who is asking, presumably a lifelong hardened criminal up there for who knows what, and what he is asking? 
mean, you'd say it's un, it's undeserved, and maybe the if if there's a way that we miss something from this, it's um thinking that that makes him unusual, right? You know, it's um sometimes we can think that that God's kingdom, of course, is open for me and. And one would like to think that I'm thinking that way because I know that the blood of Jesus has covered all over all of our sins, right? And we want that to be, and by God's grace, I mean, that's, that is who we are as Christians. I think there can be times, though, where we'll look at someone else and we'll think, well, I'm better than they are, so that puts me in a better position with God because of my good actions or whatever. And then we start to slide down that slippery slope of pride, which is, it's wickedness, and we all know it, unfortunately, too well. We think too much of ourselves, and as a consequence, think less of God. You know, what a, what a beautiful thing it is for a man um, to see so clearly his status before God and to come to God with nothing. He had nothing to offer Jesus in that moment. It was his longing that Jesus not forget him, not forget his name, I don't know what his name was. We don't know what his name was, but Jesus didn't forget his name. And um, the other, other beautiful thing, of course, is that once more, he saw Jesus as that conquering king that was praised on Palm Sunday. He was the, the, the King David to come. And that man was so excited to know that he had discovered the king, his king, um, his forever king. One more question, and, and I, I could keep asking questions, but if I keep asking questions, Easter Sunday is going to be here. This man, this criminal, hanging on that cross with what he says to Jesus is a wonderful example, but could be a horrible example at the same time. And this is what I mean. Turning to Christ on the deathbed, which he did on his deathbed, others have done, is a way of sure and certain salvation. If, if God has put faith in that heart, a deathbed confession is, is a, a way to grab onto Jesus and make heaven your eternal home. Bad example is, it, this is what I mean, a last-minute confession should not be anyone's afterlife strategy. Like, oh, look at what this guy did. Oh, maybe I should do that. I'll live however I want, and when death comes near, I'll make my confession. We do thank the Lord for every conversion, and we know that that miracle of the Holy Spirit can, can bless someone at different points in their lives. When God changes a heart, the thing that at one time someone saw as positive, one now sees as negative, and the thing that someone at one point saw as negative, one now sees as positive. So, you know, conversion, if it happens at the age of 30, can lead a young person to look back on their life and remember the time when they did not view sex as a gift from God, but as something simply for personal pleasure. And they may have, you know, very deep regrets, and they wish they could erase that part of their life. And in fact, one of the challenges can be um, the reassurance that God truly has put that away from you. You do not need to hang on to uh, a memory or a, re a regret. 
You can confess it. If needed, talk to people you have harmed if that will be of benefit. But to know God has put that behind you. So what conversion does is it it changes your whole view of what you once thought was good. And someone who, by God's grace now, sees clearly would never wish their former life on anyone, least of all themselves. They would never look back and say, like, I'm sure glad I had all that time to completely destroy and blow up my life. Because they're realizing now that's what they were doing. It's not anymore, oh man, like, it's sure a good thing I could have my fun back then when I wasn't a Christian, because now it's completely a bad thing. Right? That isn't conversion. Conversion is seeing through a completely different lens what is good and what is not good. So just from a strategy perspective, you know, the, the issue is, am I longing for God's gracious blessing or do I want to destroy myself? The less I destroy myself, clearly the better. If someone, though, were to not be thinking that way and they're still thinking, doing things that are contrary to the will of God is like the best thing ever. Any thought of faith in that moment is in some way a misunderstanding of what faith is. It's an imagining that faith can comfortably coexist with a kind of simultaneous, I hate God. I hate God and I love God at the same time. And the book of James really addresses that. Can you say that I have faith without having that life that naturally comes along with it? Such a thing does not exist. It simply does not exist. So the real danger, of course, is if someone is thinking of faith in those terms, and not to mention thinking, I have the power to create faith, which is a whole nother, nother issue, that I have a power to resurrect myself spiritually when the voice of God is speaking to me now through his word and making it clear that I'm sinning and that he loves me. If, if I say, oh no, I can wait, I have the power on my own to decide when I will come to life. That is as foolish as Lazarus in the tomb, as a dead person, thinking I can decide when I will come out of the tomb. Like he can't think, he can't even think. A, a person who's spiritually dead has no capacity to do anything to bring themselves to faith. They are, they're making, the devil is, and it's a, it's a powerful temptation, of course, but he's putting the thought in their minds, you have control over this. When in fact, they don't have the control over that. Don't worry, you have the control over this. You can, can keep on sinning. If the, if the first statement is wrong, you have control over this. Then what comes next is going to be wrong as well. When God blesses us with the good news of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of our sin and the knowledge of our Savior, that is the day of salvation. That is the moment. We would not want to put that off because we don't have the control to make that day come again. Okay, Professor, I guess I guess I underestimated how much uh, insight you could give us on these two statements. And I left out some questions. So we're going to stop here and we'll, we'll come back next week and, and pick it up where we left off with the third statement that Jesus made from the cross and pick it up there. So thank you for your insight and your time today. Well, it's my pleasure. And folks, I want to leave with you these precious words from Isaiah that we hear this time of year. Isaiah writes, All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his wounds, we are healed. Thank you for listening to Impact. 
podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Our email address is impact at st-andrew-online.org. Please tell your friends and family about Impact and pray for this ministry. Impact is new every Monday and all past episodes are available. The better you understand scripture, the greater impact it will have on your life.